The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us tonight as we continue our series about villains of the Bible. Please open your copy of the scriptures to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. As you may have already guessed, tonight our focus is going to be on the villain who is violent and arrogant named Nebuchadnezzar. If we had to boil down this monstrous monarch's role in scripture to two words, I think it would be that he is supposed to teach us about dominion and glory. Remember those words, we're going to come back to them. As we do a brief survey of Nebuchadnezzar's life, we will hopefully learn the same thing that he learned, that all dominion and glory belongs to God alone. So in order to summarize a character that is so important and influential in the Old Testament, let's break down his life into five scenes. First, we'll consider the cause of his meteoric rise, then we will consider the anxiety of his uh, inevitable fall. Third, we will consider the pinnacle of his self-aggrandizing pride. Fourth, the extremity of his immense humiliation. And fifth, the hymn of God-centered praise. Let's begin with the cause of his meteoric rise. For those who know your Bibles well, you would not be surprised by the arrival of Nebuchadnezzar on the scene. His life was not accidental. His birth was not accidental. God had been promising for many years that he would send the burgeoning Chaldeans or Babylonian Empire to besiege and conquer the people of Judah because of their sin. Now, if you remember back to our sermon series in the book of Habakkuk, you will remember that God promised to send the Babylonians to destroy Judah. The metaphorical descriptions of them are vivid and terrifying. Here's what we read in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. It says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cal cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swooping in to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, and they gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind, and they go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their god. Now, although this is a general statement about all of the Babylonians and their army, their king, Nebuchadnezzar, exemplifies all of these wicked traits. He is a law unto himself. He did not believe that he answered to anyone except himself. His own strength, his power, his dominion was his god. He was a mighty man who ruled over hordes of mighty men. Yet he was unwittingly being used as a tool in the hand of the Lord to punish the Israelites. Second Chronicles chapter 36 verses 15 through 17 explains the downfall of Judah this way. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, 
and on his dwelling place. In other words, God sent the prophets over and over and over. He sent the prophets to tell them to repent and to turn and to believe and to trust in the Lord and to get rid of their idols. But they continued in their sin. Verse 16, they kept mocking the messengers of the Lord, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he, notice who he's speaking about, God, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aged. He, God, gave them all into his, Nebuchadnezzar's, hand. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar did not elevate himself to the throne. God raised him up. Nebuchadnezzar did not randomly decide to attack Israel. God brought him up against Israel. Nebuchadnezzar did not defeat Judah because his army was bigger or because it was better. God gave Judah into his hand. So, did this wicked king do these things to honor the Lord? Was he intentionally doing God's will? No. He, he did not set his purpose on fulfilling the task of the king. No, I am certain that these truths never even crossed Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He had no clue that his great power and his position were predestined, prepared, and performed by God himself. Everything that he had had been given to him. He had not generated or created or earned any dominion at all. Understand, brothers and sisters, we are all naturally like Nebuchadnezzar. You are not successful because you worked harder. You are not uh, intelligent just because of your education. Your bank account does not simply reflect your work ethic. Sure, those are the means, but you would never achieve those ends unless God planned, permitted, and performed His work in your life. So whatever gains you have made, they are all owing to the mercy of God. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It says it this way in the CSB version. Uh, it says, For who makes you superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So I want you to look at your life. Christian, look at your life and take inventory. Take inventory of your possessions. Tally up your treasures. List all of your talents. All of this, every bit of it, is owing to God. Your good mind, your strong back, it's all by His design. There is nothing you have that you did not receive. Every success in your entire life has been due to the kindness and permissive will of God. So right off the bat, we need to get this correct. Because if you miss this foundational truth, then you're going to go down the same exact path that Nebuchadnezzar walked. His pride is astonishing, even historically epic. But it all began with a failure to know and understand that the only reason he ever wore a crown is because God let him hold on to it for a short period of time. Which brings us now to scene two in Nebuchadnezzar's life, the anxiety of his inevitable fall. Most people who are in power have one primary occupation, to retain power. George Washington was a great man. Not a perfect man by any means, but a great man. Why? Because he could have chosen to become the de facto king of this nation, but 
Instead, he chose to retire quietly and allow for peaceful transition of power, which set the precedent for our entire form of government. Nebuchadnezzar was terrified of the idea of losing power, of losing his kingdom, of losing dominion. And we know this because of the way he responded to a nightmare that he had. He awoke and he called all of the wise men to his court, and he told them that they were required to tell him the details of his dream and also tell him the meaning of his dream. Now, if you're in Daniel 2, you will see their response in verses 10 through 11. They said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing from any magician or enchanter of the Chaldean or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's response was basically, okay, really, no big deal. Uh, just tell you what, go ahead and gather up your families and get all the rest of the wise men in training and bring them on in because I'm just going to have a public execution at my nearest convenience. But as you probably know, these guys were wrong. Brothers and sisters, uh, we tend to be too concerned with losing the things that the Lord has given to us. We hold on so tightly to his gifts. Consider the saints of the early church who received the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 10, verse 34, we read, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Long Islanders, uh, we have a problem. We live in a society that is a society filled with consumerism and materialism. You probably have a wish list on a, do a dozen or more different web stores right now. Even though you have far more stuff than you actually need, and you're actually probably trying to get rid of things. We accumulate until we have to purge our homes, and then we accumulate again. We fear the possibility of losing our kingdom. So much so that we will fearfully defend it. Nebuchadnezzar was living the American dream long before there was a nation called America that came about, and he was terrified that anything would threaten that dream. If you are in Christ, you have a better possession and an abiding one, one that nobody can break in and steal. Now, you likely know the outcome of the story of Daniel. His friends come together with him and they pray, and the Lord gives Daniel a vision in which he learns the dream and he learns the meaning. And then he goes and he explains to the king that he had seen this large statue and it had a head made of gold and it had chest and arms of silver and it had a middle of bronze and legs of iron and feet that were like iron and clay mixed together. And he explained that the Babylonian kingdom and he himself represented the head of gold. But he also told him, King, you're going to be replaced. There's another kingdom coming. It's a kingdom that will be different than yours, and it will replace yours. And then after that, another and another and another, until finally there's going to be a stone that comes, and it's a rock cut out without human instrumentality, and it will strike the statue, causing it to crumble to dust, and that rock will then become a permanent kingdom that fills the whole earth. Now, of course, we know that he is speaking here about Jesus, the rock who came and set up his kingdom that will fill the earth and never end. So here we see a brief acknowledgement of God in verse 47, when Nebuchadnezzar says, Truly, your God 
is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Which brings us now to point number three, the pinnacle of Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's self-aggrandizing pride. It's hard to say Nebuchadnezzar like a hundred times in, in a sermon, um, but I'll do my best. Now, it becomes painfully obvious that Nebuchadnezzar did not learn from the dream what he was supposed to learn from the dream. Instead, it seems that he immediately began constructing a visual response. Although he praised God in that last chapter with his lips, we see that now he is interested only in worshiping himself. The dictionary describes the word aggrandize as follows. It is to enhance the reputation of someone beyond what is justified by the facts. The fact was that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was going to be replaced. Nebuchadnezzar himself was going to be replaced. But notice the visual rebellion against the vision God gave. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue with a head of gold, but the rest of it is also made of gold. He made this statue 90 feet high, and he set up in the middle of a plain where there was nothing to obstruct the view. He wanted every person who came near to cower in fear and in awe of the image that he made. And although it doesn't state this clearly, it has been suggested by many scholars that the image he made was probably a crude depiction of himself. So what do we see happening here? He gets the wrong idea. He wants everyone to worship him. So everybody who came near was commanded to bow low at the sound of the instruments that played, and they were required, upon pain of death, to worship that image which had been placed before them, dominion and glory. But, oh, brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. Your golden image might not be as grand or showy as Nebuchadnezzar's, but you certainly have one. We naturally assume that we are the protagonist in our story. We naturally assume that we are the hero. And just like with Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image isn't the real you. You have an idea of yourself that is inaccurate. You have a flawed perspective about who you really are. And it's noticeable in the way that you let yourself get away with all kinds of things that you would lambast anybody else for doing or, or saying or thinking. But it's the nature of the fallen human heart to say to everyone else that they encounter, Hey, you, notice me. Hey, you, love me. See my power. Worship me. Now, you would likely never say those things out loud, but your life quite simply speaks for itself. Every selfish act that you have ever committed is a declaration of self-idolatry. I deserve it. Why do you think that? Because you believe that you are God. Every outburst of sinful anger is basically just you realizing that someone isn't bowing down to your golden image. Envy is your belief that your domain stretches farther than it actually does. That should belong to me. Mistreatment of others just shows that you view them as inferiors, as servants of your great majesty. The unsaved heart is, first and foremost, desperately and unwaveringly in love with itself. But Christian, there is a temptation to slide right back into that mindset. You don't have to be an unbeliever to think this way. Each and every day when you wake up, you must be reminded with the gospel that you are not king. Jesus is. So let your mind be renewed so that your heart will not be like that of Nebuchadnezzar's. Now again, you probably know the ending of this story as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they are 
told to bow and they refuse to bow, so they are cast into a fiery furnace. But the Lord protects them and saves them from burning so that even their clothes don't even smell like smoke. And when they were in the fire, there was another person walking around with them, one that Nebuchadnezzar described in appearance as a son of the gods. Now, once this whole scenario had drawn to a close, the king declared, I make a decree. Any people or nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses shall lay in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. But just because he would not permit people to blaspheme or insult God does not mean that he loved God or took him at his word. Which brings us to point four, the extremity of his immense humiliation. Turn over in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Now, once again, Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream. And once again, Daniel is able to inform him of the meaning of that dream. There was a massive tree, and it served as a home for all the creatures of the world. But God sent a messenger down from heaven to cut down that tree. And God commanded that the root, rather the the uh, trunk of the tree, be left there and to be bound with iron and bronze but in verse 16, it makes it clear that this tree is not any normal tree. This tree represents a human with a mind. It says, let his mind be changed from a man's mind and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, Daniel explains in verses 19 through 27, these words, my Lord, m may the dream for... Uh, that you have seen be for those you hate, uh, and its interpretation be for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. That tree is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him be, uh, his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven away from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may, be, may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So God warned Nebuchadnezzar, and of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen. A year later, he was walking along his palace walls, and he looked out and he said, quote, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What do we see? 
dominion, and glory. Verse 31, And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. One moment, he was the most powerful man in the world. The next, he was given the nature of a bovine, and he began living in the wild like a beast. Now, don't think that you are untouchable. God could humble you in an instant. He could do exactly what he did to Nebuchadnezzar, but likely he would do whatever it is that you love. He would, he would take that thing away from you. Consider the words of Peter the Apostle when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Christian, you will be humbled. In fact, believer, it's you are only a believer because, in one way or another, God has brought you to the end of yourself. Nobody ever enters the kingdom of heaven without being brought to a point of complete self-realization. You must know that you are a sinner. You must know that you are unworthy of salvation or of God's love or of, of heaven. You must know that you have done nothing to earn God's favor or to deserve His kindness. You must be brought low to that point so that then you can stand in His strength knowing that He has given you grace and the love that you did not deserve or earn. Which brings us now to our final point, the hymn of God-centered praise. Praise is the opposite of pride, and it's how the story of Nebuchadnezzar ends in the scriptures. Now, there's a debate in the theological world about whether or not the king really repented, but I think it's very likely after study that he did. And the reason why is that his declaration about God is so very different in chapter 4 than it is in those other two examples I cited before. We call Nebuchadnezzar a villain of the Bible, but apart from the grace of God, we would also be speaking about villains like Abraham the idolater, or Moses the murderer, or David the adulterer, or Paul the persecutor. The only thing that changed those men's course was the sovereign hand of God's grace. Now, likewise, it seems that this villain of the Old Testament may have truly repented and trusted in the Lord near the end of his life. In fact, if you read carefully, you'll note the entirety of chapter 4 is actually a letter written by Nebuchadnezzar himself and was sent out to the people of his own empire. This is his testimony. Now, notice the song on his lips when the Lord restores his mind. As we walk through it, I want you to allow me to make connections here to a New Testament prayer that we see called the Lord's Prayer. He says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. What does that connect to? Our Father in heaven. I lifted my eyes to heaven and blessed the Most High. Our Father in heaven. And praised and honored Him who lives forever. Hallowed be your name. That's what hallowed mean. It means give honor to him. For dominion, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Your kingdom come. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, it seems to me that when God awoke Nebuchadnezzar from his stupor, he also regenerated his spirit. It seems to me that he was giving him his mind, but God also allowed him to see himself, to see God rightly for the very first time. Now, if you were in Christ, you are saved, not because you're any better than Nebuchadnezzar, but because you're just like him and you are given grace. So if you don't know Christ, I pray that you who are like Nebuchadnezzar would not be required to experience such a humiliation before turning and repenting and coming to him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you right now just asking that you would show us more of yourself through your word. Help us to see that each and every hero of the Bible, other than Jesus Christ, without him was a villain. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that we ourselves are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. Lord, I ask that we would not pursue our own dominion or our own glory, but just as we have seen, we, just like Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his days, would turn to you and we would say to you be all authority and power and dominion and to your name alone be the glory. Amen.